Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill and good faith. And remember, if you dig what we're doing here, please tell a friend about us. We're really easy to find at www.politicsandreligion.us. I think you need that www.politicsandreligion.us. When you tell somebody to tune in, that word of mouth is one of the most effective ways we have of growing our audience and including more people in this conversation. And with that, I am so excited about today's episode. We have two of the best political strategists in the country, Mike Madrid and Joe Trippi. Mike Madrid is a national political strategist and expert in demographics and Latino politics. Mike's academic work on Latino politics became the foundation for groundbreaking communications and outreach strategies in California, Texas, Florida, and nationwide. Later, Mike was a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, which played a significant part in defeating Donald Trump. Mike also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, and he's a regular contributor on one of my favorite programs, Politicology, with Ron Steslow, where he famously has become known for having a very particular diet for for breakfast, which we'll talk about. (laughs) He is the co-host of an excellent and timely podcast, Latino Vote, along with Chuck Rocha, who you may have heard here a few months ago on, on our show. And Mike also hosts a program, Mike Drop, on the Call-In app, which is then released as a podcast. Most notably, Mike Madrid, I think, is the first guest ever to score a hat trick on the TPNR pod. Did you know that, Mike? <laughs> no. No, I didn't know that. It's kind of a big deal. Third, yeah. third time guest. All right. Our other guest, many may know, uh, the rock star, Joe Trippy. You can hear him on yeah. That Trippy Show, another really great podcast in the political realm. Joe's been running political campaigns at every level in U.S. politics and even internationally, starting in city politics in Northern California and then jumping into the big leagues and Ted Kennedy's campaign for the Democratic nomination for president in 1980. Joe's also. I'm really old, really old. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I remember that campaign, actually. It's one of the first ones where I was, uh, you know, kind of paying attention, although my dad, who you remember, we talked to him last time. uh, He he made sure that I I was uh, politically aware. Uh, So Joe's also been involved in some groundbreaking bottom up strategies along the way, like when he ran Governor Howard Dean's grassroots presidential campaign in 2004. More recently, he helped Doug Jones, a Democrat, win the Alabama Senate seat, the first first Democrat to get elected to the Senate in Alabama in decades. So just to underscore how good these guys are at what they do, one is the consultant who helped get a Democrat elected in a statewide race in Alabama. 
And our other guest helped get a Republican elected in a statewide race in California. These guys are the best. How are you guys doing? Mike, Joe, it's great to see you. Uh, good to be with you, man. Yeah, it's really great to be on yeah. with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to jump right in and, and start by contextualizing where we are, not just in this campaign season, but more broadly speaking as a country. So I'd love if each of you could share what you believe is at stake in 2022, 2024, and beyond. Mike, since you're the, the old vet on TPNR, why don't you <laughs> kick us off and then Joe? Sure. It's always good to be introduced with the adjective old, so I appreciate that. I mean, <laughs> there's some wisdom in there, I hope. Well, if I remember correctly, we're about the same age. In fact, we were yeah. maybe wrestling up against each other uh, yeah. you know, in high school. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being old, man. It just means you got something you know, to offer, at least I think. Um, and, and so what I would offer is, is kind of this assessment is, look, we're in a period in American history where for the next probably a decade, maybe 15 years or so, uh, every every national contest, every two years is going to be extremely consequential. We're, we're dealing with something that is a social problem, that is a cultural issue in our country that is going to likely get worse before it gets better. And it's manifested itself in our political system, um, not surprisingly, as a representative government. And so this idea that we are, you know, debating an old school style of politics about the role and scope and size of government and debating tax policy is really a secondary consideration until we get through this, what I think is basically a demographic bubble, which is 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 demonstrative of a country going through something unprecedented. We've never become uh, a non-white European country. That's a big part of what this is. So this, this rise of kind of radicalism on the right is, has some clear racial connotations to it. We're also going through this extraordinary separation between the classes, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poor. That has, you know, huge, huge overtones in our society. Uh, we haven't experienced anything like it since the Gilded Age, which was a very tumultuous time in American history. And then technology, you throw in technology into this and the way we self-segregate and self-isolate amongst communities of interest, it makes it extremely difficult for us to even agree on a set of facts let alone what the solutions might be to the problems plaguing the country. And you've got this kind of perfect Petri dish of really explosive acerbic politics. And that's that's 2022. So at a 30,000 foot level, that, that's just kind of where I see things. Um, and and I, I like I said, I, I think we're in for a, a, a tough row. I think things get a little bit worse before they get better, but they will get better. We will get through it. And I think it'll be in large part because of people across party lines and across ideologies realizing that there's a greater good. And, and ultimately, I think that that leads us to a better place as Americans. What do you think, Joe? Uh, well, one, I'd agree with just about everything uh, Mike just said. But I mean, I put it worse. I, look, I, I think, you know, and it's become like, you know, a mantra, but democracy's on the ballot period uh, in 22, 2024. And I agree with with Mike that that fight over what whether we maintain you know sort of keep our democratic republic uh, that we've been all this time is going to be on the ballot for the next ten. It's not going to. This isn't going to be a quick oh uh, defeat the authoritarian uh, right in uh, uh, twenty twenty two and wow or or beat Trump in twenty twenty and man. It's all going to go away. That didn't happen. It's not going to happen, uh, for a lot of the reasons uh, uh, deep down that that you know Mike talked about. 
enlisted. But you know what 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 is going on with as as tribalism and and hatreds sort of reemerge. The re part of the reason that's happening is because the sense of common purpose of national purpose has diminished over time to the point where it's, you know, there are a lot of things in the Constitution Bill of Rights that talk about rights, not a whole lot in either about responsibility of citizens um, to find common ground, to, to put, you know, sort of the struggle between a common purpose and, and my unfettered uh, individual liberty and freedom. Uh, those two things have been in constant, little constant tension between them throughout our country, but we were always able to find the common purpose that uh, got beyond, hey, don't tell me what to do. Don't don't tell me to wear a mask or whatever the, the, the hey, I, don't, I have a right to do it my way. Um, that's because there's been a decline in national purpose. I think it's meant it's meant the rise of tribalism. It's meant the rise of these hatreds that have been out there. Uh, we many of us didn't think it was as big as it is. It's big. And it's not going away. Uh, and we have to find a way. I mean, I agree with with Mike, too, that it's not over. We can come back from this, but it's going to require all of us to talk with each other again. You know, Mike and I have always been able to do that, uh, even when we're on, you know, opposite sides. But the time for, you know, arguing, as he says, about like getting back to the old arguments of, of uh, marginal tax rates, rates and things like that those are a ways off man that's why we're we're both on you know part of a pro democracy coalition to defeat this we can have those arguments and fights later on unfortunately the one thing the one thing that scares me the most is how oblivious many americans are to the real threat and that's because it's there's a normalcy bias i mean we've been this great country for two over 250 years you know years um it can't happen here, even though the same kind of uh, feeling that, you know, Trump could never happen here. He could never get elected. Well, he did. That January 6th could never happen in America. Well, it did. And now you're you're still, even with all that, you know, oh, the authoritarian movement can, can never take power in America. That can never happen here. Well, that's how democracy dies. And the real question is, can enough and, and without with very little leadership in among Republican electeds to say, to sort of cue that that's what's going on here, folks. Uh, this is wrong. We got to step away from it. In fact, they're enabling it. So that enables that, that bias, that normalcy bias is there and people want to buy into it. No one wants to believe that this democ democratic Republic is failing and going to fail in a way that could lead to authoritarian movement uh, taking it over. And that's part of what we're up against here in, in 2022. I mean, so the a lot of the arguments, a lot of the negative ads about crime or inflation or immigration are gonna work if you're an American who thinks these are normal times. Uh, I mean, that it's a normal election between two functioning parties. Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, there's only one functioning pro-democracy party still in America. The other one has been taken hostage by an authoritarian mega cult movement. And uh and and it's strong. 
and it's well-funded. And I mean, you just look at these races where Herschel Walker is, you know, is in it <laughs> in Georgia. I mean, you know, despite everything, uh, it's a lot like the Trump uh, thing, you know, where you know, sh shoot somebody on on uh, in Times Square, Fifth Avenue and get away with it. These right now, this movement is so strong that they will ignore just about anything to take power. You know, you bring up a, a number of interesting points that I normally on this program don't get into uh, 24 hour headlines, but there have been some developments just in the last 24 hours. We're recording this on a Tuesday, uh, five weeks out of Election Day, and you brought up Herschel Walker. Yeah. You, you know, there there was uh, I think, Mike, you referred to it as uh, it's it's oppo dump time of the campaign season. You know, so we found out that Dr. Oz, the Senate Republican Senate candidate in Pennsylvania, not only doesn't have an affinity for dogs, he has an affinity for killing dogs, apparently. Or we watched uh, just in the last uh, day or so, Ron DeSantis mimicked a, a very Trumpian trick of basically pushing volunteer recovery workers out of the way for a photo op. And yet, you know, you, you mentioned Herschel Walker a woman that he impregnated literally has the receipts of him paying for paying her to get an abortion. Uh, and yet, um, as you experienced in the uh, Doug Jones campaign, um, Roy Moore had certain revelations that came out throughout the campaign and yet his support remains strong. So maybe yeah. this is more of a sociological question. Why is that? How, how, how can that be? And, how do you how do you break through on a campaign like shake people by the by the lapels like why is that and how do you break through? Well, in the in the Alabama race, uh, you know, so bizarre watching all the talking heads on you know on cable um, say after the Washington Post story, you know, that got into uh, the accusations of Roy Moore and and several. Uh, underage women, et cetera. I mean, uh, what the accusations were at the time, and everybody on uh, on cable uh, was proclaiming he was dead. I mean, absolutely dead. Our own polling showed him surge four points uh, when that story broke. We were we had been down by a point. Uh, we were tracking at the time, so it just happened to be able to spot this. But we were literally behind him by a point. And with none of this, none of the scandal stuff, we'd already closed it to a point. And then the scandal broke. Everybody thought he was dead. And he went up by by four or five points on us almost immediately. And what it was, was it was the Washington elites out to to destroy him. They were lying about the Washington elites were like if it had maybe been an Alabama paper that broke the story, uh, you know, maybe there'd be a, a difference. But it was the Washington Post. And then you had him and and Trump. And the entire Republican, you know, outrage machine go into their, this is the elites trying to uh, corrupt, uh, et cetera, you know, all the, the stuff that they, that the outrage machine is able to spew. They were, and they did. And in the end, though, there were enough um, Republican women. Uh, there aren't a lot of suburbs in, in Alabama, but they're were Republican women, younger Republicans, college-educated Republicans, that, that barely enough, by the way. <laughs> we only won by 23,000 votes. Now, it was Alabama, though. And so, look, I think that's what we have to, to hope for, that uh, 
I mean, I think in terms of going into 2022, that there are enough Republicans, enough, uh, even though it's only maybe only three, four, five, six, seven points, could be more, but who, you know, Republican women upset with uh, the Dobbs decision. And by the way, I saw this in Alabama too. There were, uh, we had focus groups where, uh, where we did focus groups with, with pro-life women. Uh, and this is, you know, 2017, way before where we are today with Dobbs. And they they literally would talk about that they were very pro-life, but they had serious doubts about whether it made sense to overthrow and change Roe v. Wade. That, you know, maybe we could find ways to work together to reduce it, but just totally overturning that, would they, they were had some angst about it. This was in 2017. So I, I think there are things that are happening out there. And again, like this, the Herschel Walker thing, does that help move the two or three points of, you know, Republican women, younger Republicans who never uh, who really have problems with sort of the homophobic and racist and other elements that they're seeing and the authoritarian uh, movement that they're seeing. So I, I, I think in a lot of ways, as as worried as I am that democracy is on the ballot, we may not succeed at stopping, uh, you know, stopping them. Uh, enough in 2022. I do think we we may. I'm one of the few people out there who still think we, the Democrats, have a a maybe a 50 50 chance of holding on to the House. And I know that's blasphemy, and people like you know go you're out of your mind. But I do just from that experience of of and the numbers I'm seeing, I do think it's possible that you know maybe Democrats lose the House by 10 seats, or we hold it by two or three. But I think it's going to be in that kind of range not not the 20 or 30 that or 40 that even that that people were talking about in the beginning of the year because of these factors because i think there are the the, the number of extreme candidates that they've nominated on the other side and the number of the i think that number of republicans who are having grave problems with where with with sort of the authoritarian side of the party um i think we're starting to see that grow a little bit not not big numbers. The mega crowd is still there, still powerful, and is going to win a hell of a lot of these seats. But I think we may it may be enough that we we eke it out. Uh, so you bring up some interesting points, uh, and and I'd like to zoom out uh, again for a second and talk about the mechanics of a campaign. I'm curious, Mike, at any given stage in a campaign, what are some of the factors that you weigh to help you gauge? whether a candidate standing where where the candidate stands in relation to their to their opponent more more big picture first then maybe we can talk about some specific uh specific races well i mean that's a that's an enormously broad question so i mean i i guess the best way to ask it or answer it is to kind of let's talk about herschel walker and where he's at in georgia at this moment in time if that's okay sure because I think this is a real test of of a campaign professional's medal right here, both Democrats and Republicans. Um, you have to really have a cool head at this moment on either side of this on how to play something this explosive. There's two things I'm convinced of. One is, uh, to Joe's point, uh, Herschel Walker's not out of the race. This is, this is mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw polling similarly to what he was seeing in Alabama that would show a consolidation of the Republican vote even a little bit more immediately. 
Um, and then, you know, maybe a week or two later, you could start to see some dissolution of it. But he's I, conventional wisdom right now on social media and on cable shows is this race is over. I don't believe that for a second. OK, but I'm also convinced that there's more news coming. <laughs> right. It's kind of like it's kind of like Doug. It's kind of like the, the Moore race in, in Alabama. Right. It's it's this it's October 3rd is when the story broke. OK. And, and, you know, the thing about oppo is we've gotten so good at it is you don't dump your best stuff first, right? You build up to it, right? You, you put the candidate in trouble. And this is a very deeply flawed candidate. This candidate's going to go through the mill right now. And what they're deciding literally this morning is, okay, our candidate has probably lied to us, right? We've got to win this race despite the candidate. His natural inclination is going to be to lie about it because he's freaked out and he's scared. If he lies about it, we know that more information is going to come out showing that he's lying. So you've got a really tough decision as a campaign professional to make right now. You got to sit your client down and say, look, man, <laughs> okay, look, we're at where we're at. You got you. I know you haven't been cleaning up front with us before, but you know, you're going to have to, you, you We've got a decision. We either double down on the lie and try and ride that out, or you you come out and you ask for forgiveness and say that you did this and 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 you know and and try to make some amends with both your family and the public. The problem with both of those strategies is, like I said, there's a month left in this race, and and if anybody thinks that this is the biggest bomb that's going to drop, you're wrong. There's more coming, and so you, they've really they really don't have a good place to be. As the Republicans, as if I'm Warnock, I, I stay away from everything. Just get get the hell out of the way. Get, you know, get away from the explosion. So let, let me just ask a few specific questions in this. And may, Joe, maybe this is where you're going. But as as a practitioner, are you focusing on not leaking in this case the MAGA uh, base, or, or do you think there's still an opportunity to persuade? We, I was going to ask you both about the Bannon line voters. The you know. Yeah. Um, or, or are you still thinking there's a chance to win over enough of those Bannon line voters, those persuadable independent voters, those undecideds, if there are any left? Where's your focus on making sure that you're plugging the leaks or still the possibility of persuading some of those Bannon line voters? I, I don't think I think that the, they're not going to leak any MAGA voters. It's not that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, the MAGA voters, they, this won't matter to them. Nothing matters. You know, it's just a. It's just like any way they can stick it to the elites, defeat the, you know, defeat the the socialist Democrats, whatever the hell the outrage machine is pushing this week. And by the way, Mike's right about the oppo, but there'll be another outrage tomorrow mm -hmm. that the outrage machine goes crazy on Democrats and 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 Warnock and everybody for. So both those things are going to play out. I do think that this doesn't help. Walker at all with the Bannon line voters. I mean, again, those those Republican women who were voicing in the focus groups we saw in Alabama that they had concerns about whether Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. I suspect are some of the votes that have been leaking over, you know, to to the Democratic side. I don't see how hypocrisy on this. I mean, personal hypocrisy of uh, uh, you know denying it or or admitting it and asking for forgiveness, that may be a, a better way to win some of those band line voters back. But th that might risk, you know, asking forgiveness is not a good thing in MAGA world. So that could be the the question. I mean, if you're sitting down as a consultant or a strategist for, for Herschel Walker, 
this is this is why this could be really explosive and and, and tough for him because they go one way they could win those Bannon line voters bring some of them back and and get past Warnock on sick on the other hand doing that might create a bunch of bag of folks to say oh hell you know he's too weak he asked for forgiveness oh my god that's disgusting that's horrible um using words that Trump would use in this yeah. situation and so that's interesting I do agree uh with my tooth though that you know Warnock uh, you know, it's like look, when somebody's blowing themselves up, don't get in their way, you know, just sort of keep keep your keep to your plan and let them decide which which part of the limb they want to saw off here. Because I don't see how how they handle this in a way that doesn't impact one way or another the Bannon line or the or the MAGA uh, cult. So, I mean, this is such an interesting case study and there's a lot of really interesting closely held races. But how do you as a strategist? decide how to deploy your resources. I'm assuming that uh, some some campaigns, you have more limited resources than others, uh, but you have to, it's almost like you have to pick your poison, saw off a limb or, you know, try to avoid the explosion or, um, or is there something um, strategic and, and, and potentially effective that you can do? How do you, how do you make those decisions? Well, every situation, of course, is different. Yeah. Right? Every battlefield is different, but there are there are some basic metrics that you look at. And again, we we use we use military parlance in campaigns because they're not that different. The strategic tactics of a campaign campaign comes from a military campaign. The battlefield changes in every fight, and you have to adjust accordingly. And that's what makes a good general, right? Is to know the fundamentals of the race. This race is is a little bit different. And I think, again, Joe and I are, are pretty much in simpatico on, on everything that we're, we're seeing, in, at least at this moment in time. What I will say is that you a little bit unique. And again, we're, we're, we're not even 24 hours out of this big bombshell. Again, this, this, this podcast will come out uh, after a few days and other decisions are made. But at the moment, like when you're in the middle of this, when this bomb drops, I think what's different is you didn't really start to see the narrative change and from feedback on the ground in Georgia with Republicans until his son, Christian Walker, jumped into this thing. Yeah. OK, if this had just been a Daily Beast story, the, they they would have handled it the way that they handled it, which is Walker goes out and he denies it on Fox. Right. And this is this is the establishment and they're going to lie. This never happened. And then his son comes out, who's an influencer in his own right. Yeah. And says, bullshit this is all a big lie right now at that point it's it's a whole different calculation it's a whole because he's an he's this massive variable that you don't have in most other scenarios it's it's, it's it would be like a don jr or an ivana trump ivanka trump coming out and saying dad's a liar he's a crook he's a thief you all know it it's true here's the deal right uh, that would change the dynamic and the trajectory of the media narrative because now they've got to crawl back. And, and, and right-wing media, the, the Fox Newses of the world, the free beacons of the world, all of these guys are already trying to do damage control and give them an audience and try to allow the campaign to express their way out of it. They were, they're in a real conundrum right now. And when we look, I, I, I coined the term the Bannon line. Yeah. To, to refer to that four to five percent of Republican women that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. The reason why I use that language, the Bannon line, was because it wasn't just Mike Madrid saying it, it wasn't just Democratic operatives saying it, it wasn't just the left saying it. It was Steve Bannon who was acknowledging that they have to have 100 percent unity in the base to be competitive as a party. 
It's why Republicans treat apostates and turncoats like the Lincoln Project guys or Liz Cheney as as like worse than the devil. Like the, the, there's the devil is bad, but underneath the doormat <laughs> of the devil is where we are, right? right. Like we're those. <laughs> yeah. And, and the reason right. is because you have to keep conformity in a cult. The, the, the most damaging thing to a cult is the people who leave and say, it's a cult, right? right. And, and so, so they have to drive that person out as an apostate. It's the same thing with voters. So one of the effective things about organizations that go in and are trying to peel out these Republican voters, it's an offensive yeah. strategy. We're not going after independents or conservative leaners. You're going into it, it, chipping into the base, and you're hammering, 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 as you've seen the Lincoln Project do, right, quite effectively. Right. And all you're trying to do is peel off a couple of chips. Yeah. Because with, without those chips, it, it's mathematically yeah. impossible for the Republican to win. And that's why this moment is important, right? And that that, that those this Republican women, this ban in line demographic it's generally a college educated suburban woman voter not always but that's the bulk of them they are not comfortable with the party's confederate posturing they're not comfortable with the party's abortion right stuff they're not comfortable with the hard line ugly hardcore cultural messaging that's anti-homophobic that's racist that's just ugly they they're, they 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 like they like the tax cuts, <laughs> they like the country club part of it. That's why they're Republican. They have never been really comfortable with the cultural drift of the Republican Party. And as it gets more extreme, they're losing that voter on the margins. Mm. And the job right. is to go in there and hammer it, hammer it, hammer it, not to persuade them and to convince them that our policies are better. It's really to ostracize and shame the shit out of them to say, you're not comfortable in the country club setting anymore, you know, standing next to a bunch of Confederate soldiers. Like that's who you are. And the thing, the thing that happens though, when you look at, cause I've seen a bunch of, you know, done a bunch of focus groups on this stuff. These women, a lot of them have, never voted for anybody but the Republican Party for their entire lives. And so you can see them sort of have this reckoning with themselves. Literally, they they start to stare down at their shoes and start muttering that they can't believe, they can't believe that maybe for the first time in their life as they sort of, and they spit out the word, Democrat, <laughs> like like it's poison for the and, yeah. and they're like yeah and, and it's a and so I agree with with Mike I I one that that's going on, but that's part of the barrier the 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 brand of the Democratic Party has been so poisoned with these people for so long, you know, decades by the outrage machine whatever. And, and mistakes the party's made. I'm not. I'm not. You know, saying you know absolution for anybody, but it's that's the barrier, right? It's their perception of the brand that they've despised for so long. They're starting to really have deep problems with the Republican Party, and it, it's that if they get through that barrier, that's the Bannon line voter. That's the voter who says. Now, damn it, maybe I'm only going to date these turkeys for a year or two or right. a cycle or two. But um, I can't I can't be with this party right now. I'm going to I'm going to vote Demo Democratic. But it's a struggle 
for them internally to to get there. And that's why I think uh, Mike's right that that constant sort of pounding on what this party's become on is this really who you are? Right. Um, you know, really asking those questions opens up a, an off ramp, a way to come over. And I think that Bannon line has grown. I mean, I know it was three or four points in 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 the 2020 election. I, I think it may have grown now to, to seven, eight, you know, some, somewhere oh, up there, you know, uh, in, in a place where it can make a, a bigger difference. And the other thing, look, these places that we're talking about, like Georgia, I mean, the reality is there's Pennsylvania, Ohio, with Biden's numbers being where they're at, these guys should be getting creamed by 10 points. Warnock should be sitting in the low 40s, you know, basically, you know, praying for lightning or something, a miracle to happen. It's not happening because I think this this decoupling has happened in this election where it's not about the a referendum on the president. It really is a choice between these these two parties mm-hmm. and, and their candidates. They've gone MAGA. And there will be the usual attacks about how extreme the left is and the Democrats are. But I think they're really bleeding ban and line voters right now. And that may be it. That's why I still that's why I keep going back to my view that the House side of this will be uh, closer than people think, because it's this is all happening in the same country. Right. The, these Senate races. Look, none of us think a Senate a race in California, anybody but a Democrat is going to win it for Senate. It, you know, Idaho, no one but a Republican. So then when you get to where these these battleground states are for, for Senate races, where are they? Pennsylvania, Ohio, um, Nevada. Same thing. Throw out all the bright red House districts, throw out all the bright blue House district, districts, you get to 32, 33 toss ups. They're a lot closer to what's going on in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia. If that same bleeding is going on with with uh, the Bannon line voters in those in those toss up races, I think people will be surprised by, you know, not that we take the house. I'm not predicting that, but I'm saying I I think it can happen and that we're a lot stronger. The pro-democracy side of this is a lot stronger because of those Bannon line voters that may come across too in the House races. So much of what you're saying makes sense. I always picture the uh, Bible study class, the Sunday school class I went to for 10, 15 years at Grace Baptist Church. And there's about 10, 15 couples in that class. Uh, so 20, 30 people in there. It was a young marriage class when I used to be young. But, you know, listen, the Bannon line is defined as you're describing it by the women in that room, college educated, suburban, historically Republican voting women. Uh, almost always Republican voting women. And listen, you're not gonna you're not gonna persuade that entire room, but there's at least one, two, three of those right. women right. in that room. Yeah. And I know them that are persuadable. But what you're saying, Joe, and I've heard Rick, Rick Wilson talk about this too. The Bannon line isn't two or three. The Bannon line can be expanded. He was saying as as much as 10 to 12, I've heard him say. So who who are those other Bannon line voters? And and is it the same in every district? Because you know, every district has its own uh, nuanced constituency. Uh, so who who are they if it's not just two or three? Who are the other ones? And how do you reach them? How do you persuade them? Well, I think uh, they're, they're, well, it's different in a lot of places. Yeah. But the the obvious places, uh, I, I think, are are the women that Mike and I've talked about that sort of are the base of that group. 
younger Republicans, I think, are are there. That's growing group, particularly after uh, Dobbs' decision. Some of them are, you know, are motivated by the extreme. The, they believe the party's too extreme on a whole bunch of things, race and a bunch of other things. Uh, they 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 like the tax cuts. They like fiscal conservative, all all those things. But that's the party's gone off the rails on on things they do care about, uh, including some of them climate change. So I think that that group, younger Republicans, um, I think, too, the weird one, uh, there are a bunch of weird things now because of what these guys have been doing. I mean, the the Ukraine, Russia thing. I mean, there are a lot of Republicans, older Republicans, too, that have, you know, viewed Russia as the big, you know, big threat enemy of America and suddenly their party, Trump and, and, and Tucker Carlson, you know, and by the way, just like clockwork, 94% of them are sitting there going, yeah, why are we uh, standing up to Putin? Why are we doing Ukraine? But the, there's a group, I think, that is starting to really wonder about, you know, what's happened to that strong, you know, party that that stood up, you know, Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall, that kind of stuff. Yeah. There, that's happening. And the next, the other one is Venezuelans and folks like that in places like Florida, where just the stupid stunt of sending those folks to Martha's Vineyard, as and, and he, you know, Mike's the expert on this stuff uh, for sure uh, uh, on that community. But it's different everywhere. A Mexican American in, in in Texas is different from a Venezuela, you know, somebody who escaped from Venezuela, and how they react to this to to that stunt can cost you votes in 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 Florida. And I don't know if those campaigns there are going to be that tight. But I mean, there's different factions that they. I think for bizarre reasons, they're like they're they're breaking off little. As, he, as Mike said. You just bang the bang it and chip, bang it and chip. So banging on that community. You talked about how do you spend your money? Well, right now I'd be spending a lot of money digitally and on radio, going at Venice, you know, Venezuelan community community in 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 Florida, uh, you know, because uh, you can reach them digitally. I mean, there's ways to reach people differently than. By the way, that's the one thing I think the mistake, and I think Mike Mike might agree with me on this is. The big mistake these campaigns are doing is spending so much money on television mm. where it's just a zero sum game. I mean, after you get to saturation, more more saturation doesn't do anything. Um, a lot of these messages, you could be going at some of these band and line women in the suburbs with with uh, you know online and digital and other things. And same with with uh the different groups within the Hispanic community with different arguments for 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 for, uh, in different states, but it's different everywhere. I, I love seeing, uh, so I'm in California 27, which I'm going to ask you about in a second, but I love seeing Mike Garcia ads in, in, in this district because, uh, and, and Mike, I think, I, I think we talked about this at one point, but in order to run TV here, you have to pay so much money to, yes. to air in, in, a part of this region that has nothing to do with California 27. So he's, he's literally blowing money away. And by the way, the ads themselves are, are just weak. Like that's all you got on Christy Smith. So I kind of like seeing Garcia ads uh, on TV. Cause I, I, I know it's, it's such a inefficient use of, of their funds and whoever he has making those ads, man, 
I'm never going to introduce them to my friends in <laughs> in strategic advert creative advertising because they could do you know they in their sleep they could make a more effective ad. But Mike, you sound it's, it looks like you have something uh, to respond to 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 Joe. Tell him where where he's wrong. <laughs> no, he, he's not wrong. I mean, there's a couple things. I, the, the, running broadcast in LA, real quickly. Running broadcast in yeah. LA um, is incredibly inefficient. Yeah, it, yeah. it's the most it's expensive crazy. waste of money possible but what it really tells you is there's that that's how much money they have and there's probably no more inventory left so there's kind of this mythology about campaigns running out of money like that doesn't happen (laughs) there there will be money both sides in a competitive race they will find the money somehow there is going to be the money there and it's really more it's, it's not a sign really of 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 wasted money it's a sign of no more inventory left and so they're willing to spend a gazillion dollars for a 30 second ad that only 14 people literally are probably their target to try to get to move over in raw numbers. It's incredibly inefficient, but I wouldn't suggest that it's a sign of bad tactics. It's just a sign of there's more money coming into a district like that and there's nowhere else to spend it. Uh, and that that's important because it is a good segue to talk about the, the we are in some ways conflating the idea of the ban in line with, with persuadable voters. Right? Yeah, that's okay. true. Yeah, I agree with that. The ban in line can't go to 13. That's not what that is, right? What we're really saying is that the nature of the Republican coalition is changing. One of the most profound discussions I had was at, in, in the end of the 2020 cycle, because I was the guy doing the math uh, and the targeting for the Lincoln Project, is Stuart Stevens asked a great question. He said, Mike, everything that you're saying is a little bit different than what we've ever done on a campaign before. Let me ask you one broad question. And it's a question I'll never forget. He said, if you were to run the last, our closing narrative here, the Lincoln Project's closing narrative, if it's going to be on economic or cultural issues with our base voters, which would it be? And immediately I said cultural. And he kind of sat back and said, that, that's interesting. And, and I realized how profound it was because in 30 years of my professional career, I had never said that either. And he was aware of it. That's not the way we have ever talked about wedging off our own Republican issues with our own base. But that's what was happening is the Republican Party. And this is really to Trippy's another another piece data point to, to make his case on the potential competitiveness of the House. I don't believe in, in the generic ballot as, as a good indicator anymore. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe in presidential approval as a good indicator anymore. Let me tell you what I think is the most hidden metric that nobody is paying attention to. And very few pollsters even ask this question, but those that do, you can see exactly what's going on. And that is, which party do you think is the most extreme? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And and yeah. Republicans are kicking the crap out of Democrats on that metric. Wow. Like the average American thinks the Republican Party is more extreme. And in an era of negative partisanship, that's the metric to look at. Yeah. That's the data point that none of these 100%. people are looking at. And so when you and the, and the reason is because people are more inclined to vote against things than for things in this environment. And you vote against extremes. Right. It's you're rejecting extremes. So when, when, when Joe is saying this demographic is more in play than people think, I think he's right. He's exactly right. For that reason is the Republican Party at this point in time is viewed markedly more extreme right. And they're losing their college-educated base on the 
our own issues as Republicans is what we used to run to consolidate the base is now pushing them away. That's a sign that there's a problem in the Republican base. So here's the here's the thing that makes this sort of takes us to the fore. So you go look at New York 19, right? Molinaro is not, you know, one of the crazier cult MAGA folks, right? And Ryan defeats him by by outperforming Biden and Democratic performance in the district, which I think, again, gets to Mike's point that the party now, the extremism in the party is now tainting even candidates who aren't, you know, card carrying mega cult members. That's how Ryan. I mean, that's why the explanation for Ryan, Ryan defeating Molinaro. Now, take that to the next step. So we've had five special elections in the House this year. All five Democrats have outperformed Democratic performance in Biden. I mean, Biden may have lost the district by 14 and the Democrat lost it by seven in the House special. But I mean, so we didn't win them all, but we've outperformed everywhere. So there are 222 districts in America today that have a higher Democratic performance than New York 19. Oh. So why is it, this is why when you put what Mike said, the sort of extremism in the party, it's starting to taint everything. You you have evidence in those five races, New York 19 being the most recent, and we outperform there. And there's 222 districts that have better Democratic performance than New York 19, but it's going to be a wipeout, folks. <laughs> we're we're just dead. It's going to be twenty because it's because it's a midterm, and everybody knows right. what happens in right. midterms. That's what's right. going on. It's crazy. Yeah, the old the prognosticators are using the same tools that they've been using for thirty years. The generic ballot is it's a data point, but it, it just because it's been correlate with outcomes doesn't mean it's caused it. Yeah. And, and that that uh, what Joe is saying is right, is is people are looking at the same data that they have been and it's not it's not producing the same outcomes. And so I just look at data a little bit differently. And I, I, I think I think there's a lot of, of merit to what Joe is saying. And if you look through the lens of, of negative partisanship, you start to understand why why uh, Joe's right about the Democrats overperforming the, the, the model over and over, even though they're not they're not crushing the Republicans in the generic ballot. Right. Or Biden's numbers were sitting in the high mid 30s when the Democrats are overperforming in New York 19 and right. overperforming in the Nebraska special election. It's like why if the if the data is not matching what's happening on the ground, maybe the data is not a, a good reflection right. anymore. And that's what when you look at the Cook Report or Sabato's crystal ball and all these guys, it's like they're using the same metrics that they were using in the 80s. I don't mean to, to you know, be. I, I looked at it as as an old stock operator because I, I saw this. The, the first thing that was often talked about in the um, upcoming midterms as far back as a year, year and a half ago was the historical trend that the party in power loses seats, gets wiped out. Uh, in the first midterm in a new president's um, in a, a new president's term, but that's just a technical data point, and there are right. there have been exceptions uh, to that technical data point when the fundamentals don't match the technical. Um, then then we have to start questioning. And Joe, you've been talking about this for months. I heard you on a um, an interview with Bill Crystal where you did start talking about the the um, 
the fundamentals. But I know I know we're short on time, so I want to I want to ask you. Uh, I was going to ask you about one one point where I think you disagree, and that is, uh, Joe, you talked about uh, on a on the trippy show that came out this morning. Uh, you had two guests that were talking about Tim Ryan's campaign in in Ohio, mm-hmm. and that one tactic he's deploying is going into the rural parts of the state uh, to persuade voters or or maybe uh, to minimize the score um, that uh, that he'll be outperformed that he'd typically be outperformed there. Mm-hmm. So one is, do you find his his time in the rural part of the state to be effective? And then if so, Mike, tell him why he's wrong. Because I know on Mike Drop, he railed against the strategy that Beto has has been trying and it's a waste of time. Well, they're first of all, they're two different places and and, and they're different uh, candidacies. I think the reason it works for Ryan is because J.D. Vance doesn't is not like some rural blue collar uh, Republican. He just reeks of being a VC and, you know, tech entrepreneur who's distant uh, has never, hasn't been seen, sort of been missing in action the whole campaign. And so I think for, uh, and and Tim Ryan is a blue collar guy. I mean, he just, he's a a blue collar guy. Yeah, a lot of ways, the same way uh, Fetterman may may appeal to some uh, people in the T in Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania, we, you know, it's it's Philly, Pittsburgh, and Alabama in between, and the T is Alabama. And I think Fetterman can appeal there. These are the same thing. Doctor Oz, phony, you know, carpetbagger. I mean, so I think those two races, that strategy is uh, trying to appeal. And talk to those voters, I think, is a is a good one. Maybe the the margin both of them uh, need to win in Ohio and Pennsylvania as those races uh, are going to get closer. They always do. And Beto is a different situation. And uh, both he and Abbott known entities. I'm not I'm not sure uh, Mike and I would disagree too much about Ohio uh, or 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 Texas. They're to- totally two different. Uh, you know, places in terms and, and not just I'm not talking just geographically. I'm talking about the the difference between the contrast between the two candidates is a different contrast, I think. Well, before you respond, Mike, um, do I can I uh, keep you for an extra couple minutes? Because I know Joe has to take off. Yeah. I have one last question for you, Joe, and and then I know, I, I appreciate. Yeah, I'm time. sorry. I I'm sorry. I have to. That's okay. That's okay. We, we love having you as as long as we can. So I'm going to ask for some free advice since I'm a California 27 honk. <laughs> uh, it's it's it is one of the more closely held races in the country. I, I don't know how familiar you are, Mike Garcia. You know, is uh, about as MAGA as they come. He he tried right. to run as a you know a centrist. But his voting record, all of his public statements indicate that he is just playing to the, the the most extreme MAGA part of his party. So, if you were to be able to, uh, number one, who is persuadable in this district? W- what would you say uh, to a candidate and a campaign? W- what should they be doing to persuade those last persuadables here? Because in the last election, Christy, who's running again, Christy Smith, lost by three hundred and thirty-three votes. One tenth of one percent yeah. of of the um, the electorate. So, what are some of the things that you can be doing at this stage? Five weeks left to maximize the 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 folks who are going to vote for you to maximize the turnout. But maybe for those last few three hundred and thirty three voters, 
uh, what would you be saying to them and, and what would you be doing to persuade them to come over? I don't think campaigns, the campaign itself has much ability to persuade people to come over at this point. I, I would concentrate my campaign on getting my, you know, getting my folks out. Um, I would encourage volunteers and people, in, you know, uh, to in the campaign to reach out to their friends, neighbors and, and co-workers who might be uh, might that they may have stopped talking to the last couple of years and actually take them out to coffee. And, and peer to peer is more likely to get one of those people to break off and, and decide to vote to date Democrats for a couple, you know, for this cycle and next. I don't think a campaign at this stage is going to be able to do that. Much more important at this stage, I think, to concentrate on turning your vote out and where you can encouraging people to start talking to their friends and neighbors about why they should leave the Republican Party for one for one or two elections and, and help save democracy. So an emphasis on the grassroots, an emphasis yeah. on the turnout campaign, turning turning voters out. Um, so I know you got to go, but before you go, how can folks find you online and that Trippy show and, and all the great work that you're doing? Uh, at Joe Trippy on Twitter is probably the best place to to find out what I'm up to. And of course, uh, that Trippy show, uh, appreciate a listen. Uh, I think you'll like the guests we have on and uh, find it anywhere you find this podcast. Sure thing. T-R-I-P-P-I. Joe, it's it's great seeing you. Yeah. It's great hanging out with you again. I hope you don't wait as long for the next time. No, it's great being with you, on with you. And, and and Mike and I have been like, we were just talking before we came on about how long it's been since we've been uh, in the same spot or at least seeing each other on, yeah. on, on Zoom. It's a uh, it's it's uh, great to be with you guys. It was a really great conversation. Thanks, guys. Sorry, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Take care. Take care. All right, Mike. So so uh, do you want to respond to that? Uh, yeah, the, the... it's not really a response. It's just I, Joe's right. I mean, geography really matters. But I will say this. And, and let me let me again. I, I don't I don't want to geek out too much, but I'm a geek. And that's, I think, why people probably tune into the show. So let's get under the hood a little bit. Sure. Texas, Ohio, and Pennsylvania were the three states he mentioned. And let, let's just rewind a little bit for the listeners. Okay, basically, yeah. the argument is, should Democrats be going into rural, deep red, deep MAGA counties and trying to peel off votes, a handful of Republican votes, in order to diminish these big margins that Republicans are getting in winning races? And Joe's, Joe's right. In some places, it might make sense. It might make more sense in Ohio. And I'm going to say might, okay? Mm -hmm. It might make more sense in Ohio because of the unique dynamics of that race. Tim Ryan is a particularly good candidate and J.D. Vance is a particularly bad candidate, okay? It's, it's not often that those two dynamics meet. And so it may make a lot of sense. In fact, the math may require Ryan to go into those districts in Ohio. So in Ohio, I, I can give him a pass there. Okay. Let's talk about Texas, because I've been a very big critic of Beto's campaign, because this is where they've put a lot of emphasis and time and messaging. I think it makes no sense in Texas. And the reason is because the way you win Texas statewide, of course, is by, as a Democrat, is you have to close the gap with white suburban voters. He's talking to white rural voters, which are the most conservative of the conservative voters out there. Now, there's an argument that what he's trying to do is put out the imagery that he can talk to everybody and he's a different kind of Democrat because he can win over 
white conservatives in the rural part of Texas, and that makes him more open and amenable and, and softens his hard Democratic edges with GOP women and are like, okay, if some of those rural whites can you know go with him, then I guess I can go with him. But the truth of the matter is, in campaigns, you go fishing where the fish are, especially mm. fish that are going to eat your bait. And those fish aren't eating his bait. There's not enough voters. There's not enough fish for Beto to be getting in these deep MAGA counties. Bad strategy. I don't I don't think he's going to get there. And I think his campaign's going to have some answering to do in the postmortem to say, why were you spending that much time there when there just was not enough yield to get for what you were investing time and resources on? So you're saying instead of going six hours west of, of uh, Austin, you'd go 30, 45 minutes north of Austin to Pflugerville or 30, 45 minutes north of Dallas to Plano. And those are the fish that are that are ready to bite more so than the ones in West Texas. Shouldn't leave anywhere more than 45 minutes out of the core of any one of the cur- ur- urban centers in Texas. Houston, the, Dallas. Yeah, that, yeah, that's it. And instead of doing two events in rural, you know, Okefenokee County up by the Oklahoma border or whatever, <laughs> you should be spending six time doing six events in the burbs outside of Austin. Yeah. You just spend more time, more effort, more energy, more research, resources, create more of a buzz. You're going to raise more money. You're going to drive more message to a constituency that's actually going to get you where you need to go. And I think that's one of the tactical mistakes that the Beto campaign has made to this point. Now, the the in between those two is Pennsylvania. Can I switch over there real quick? Sure. Again, just hardcore geeking out, but we're in that point in the cycle. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. Fetterman has this imagery of kind of being a blue collar guy. And um, he looks very blue collar, right? He talks very blue collar, especially when Oz is kind of this, you know, a New Jersey out of state multi gazillionaire who eats crudite. Like they framed him, they framed him so so well. But here's here's what's fascinating. Fetterman is actually doing worse in rural parts of Pennsylvania than he is in the urban core. He's he's not he's not the imagery of who he view, he's perceived to be and what the data is actually saying is not the same. And what you have to understand about Pennsylvania is exactly what Trippy just mentioned. Pennsylvania, if it's a rectangle, in the lower left-hand corner is Pittsburgh, in the lower right-hand corner is Philadelphia. Right. If you take those two squares out, it leaves what looks like a T. And we that's what we call the T. And the T in, Phil- in Pennsylvania is very rural. It's like upper New York. It's like uh, eastern Ohio. It's very rural, very poor, very white, very non-college educated, not a lot of economy there. Okay, not a lot of, you know, there's no high tech moving to the T in, 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 in Pennsylvania. And that has that is deep MAGA country. That's where Trump dramatically overperformed. And so the argument of going into the T uh, to, to suppress or peel off that hardcore MAGA vote is a tactical decision that every campaign needs to make. I don't believe Democrats are their best messengers there. Mm. I spent millions of dollars uh, on the Lincoln Project peeling off votes in Erie County, Pennsylvania, and it worked because we were using Republican messengers talking to other Republicans and saying, this is not your party and this is where, you you know, at least this one time, this is where you ought to go. That is not a message that Democrats are good at conveying, not because they're Demo- not because of their bad people, but because they're Democrats. It's the same reason you don't put a Republican into an urban black precinct 
in the last month of the campaign. It's not because they're bad people. It's because you're not going to get enough votes out of there. No matter how hard you work at it, there's just not enough votes. And even if you got them, there's not enough to make a difference for what you're trying to accomplish. And so that's the problem with Democrats is they have is it's just I, I think it's a bad strategy to go and peel off a handful of smattering of rural white votes because it's so labor intensive. It's so difficult to get to. And even if you're successful, you're not getting the amount of votes that you need to to win. So to apply your Texas strategy to Pennsylvania, that would be Bucks County, for example. Yeah. Exactly. When I drive up the river road, whenever I go visit one of my favorite places in the country, by the way, I drive up the river road to New Hope mm-hmm. uh, each election cycle. I'm looking for for those signs out in the big you green see them, yards. Right? Yeah. You see yeah. Trump signs out there. Well, yeah, you did it. You certainly did. In, um yeah, they're kind of faded now, but you definitely and that that was one of the signs in 2016. Yeah. Is consultants were saying Republican consultants were calling me saying Trump's going to win Pennsylvania. And I was like, you're out of your mind. Like Pennsylvania has not gone Republican since 1988. Yeah. And they were like, something is happening here. It's so funny. I I had this drive from uh, well, I was driving out from New Orleans, but driving back to Austin. So I had that kind of semi rural drive between Houston and and Austin. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was uh, October of 2020. And I thought, man, I know some of the polls are saying that. It's it's really close here and and uh, Biden has a chance. But based on the signs on that road from Houston to Austin, ain't no way. Ain't no way. Yeah. And we get caught in our media bubbles, too, especially as Californians or New Yorkers or whatever, whatever social media is. We, we just can't imagine like that. That's a real thing. And like, how could that be possible? And you don't realize that when you look through the mirror, there's red voters looking at the exact same direction, saying the exact same things. How can people vote for Joe Biden? Like what what are they what media do they listen to? What world are they in? Yeah. And as committed as blue state blue voters are, they there's this lack of recognition that they are their counterparts are equally as committed, equally as focused, equally as siloed on their candidates and their party and their view of the world. And because we don't talk, because as I said in the intro, because we don't share common platforms or common neighborhoods anymore. There's no there's no agreement on even what the issues of the day are, let alone how to solve them. Yeah. So a a couple more questions. One, again, I'm so myopic, California 27. But I think it is it is one of those small handful of districts that is really closely held. And um, it it may be one of the ones that that a lot of folks are looking to 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 get a gauge on which way the the election is going uh, on um, November 8th. So what would you say to Christy Smith's campaign managers and Christy Smith herself in these last five weeks of the campaign? What do they need to be doing to really bring this thing home? Well, I mean, Joe's right at this point with a few weeks left, it's all getting out the vote and getting your base vote out. Uh, Like I said, look, I'm not afraid to be critical. I'm going to be a little bit critical of of the Christy Smith campaign. Uh, They this race should not be that close. She should be pulling out and pulling ahead. She should have won last time. This is a district that has one of the highest numbers of college-educated voters that is held by a Republican in Congress. It shares that commonality with a couple of the Orange County seats in California. Um, The numbers, just the basic math demographically, would suggest that they should be in a better position that they're in. I think Christy Smith will win, but I think that they've got a hell of a lot of work to do to refine the tactical elements of their campaign going forward to preserve and protect that seat if Democrats are going to hold it. Because the, the, the demographics, if not the partisanship, suggest that she should be in a better position. 
So at this point, the persuasion has largely been done. I think Garcia has done most of the damage to himself, frankly, and what they um, truly his voting record and voting yeah. this way in a college educated district makes no sense. It does in 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 you know the rural part of Louisiana that you were talking about. It does in upstate New York. Does not make sense in the Santa Clarita Valley. Uh, he's just he's just he's just completely misreading it. He's got really bad advice. He's got either really bad instincts or he's not able to look past his own MAGA pers- perspective of the world and and believes, I think, erroneously that it, that the MAGA base can protect him in a district like this. Yeah. If Christy Smith hasn't closed the um, the door with college educated suburban women, then shame on them. But the, the biggest advocate for, for Christy Smith's cause is Mike Garcia. So it's interesting. I, I'm going to really zero in on this for a second, and then I'll ask the, the more broad question. At, at the beginning of our conversation, I think it was Joe who said, democracy's on the ballot. And I'm an engaged citizen. I have lots of conversations in my friend's backyard. And I've been saying since January 6th, this next election and elections thereafter, uh, until further notice, are about democracy itself. And the fact that our representative voted to overturn duly um, you know, uh, elections in, in Pennsylvania and Arizona and has continued to talk about election security and, and bang this drum that Donald Trump would would, you know, would would have scripted for him. But the my friends in those backyards often will divert the conversation to, oh, well, did you see Joe Biden? And he's, uh, you know, he he's, uh, you know, just talking about how old he is. And, you know, they're, they're basically uh, regurgitating uh, whatever Hannity's script was. Um, so it seems maybe I'm just talking, maybe I'm friends with guys who are really ensconced in the Newsmax, uh, Fox News world. Uh, but uh, it, it does seem to me, it concerns me that they're not convinced that democracy is on the ballot. Um, any advice to guys like me, just regular engaged citizens to really um, bring home that point that, listen, no, this is real. Like, we're, you know, th- this whole democracy is not a given thing. This is real. Any advice for guys like me? To convince those guys? Yeah. Well, an interesting poll came out about three weeks ago that showed that 67 percent of Americans believe that a democracy was on the ballot. The funny thing about it was 67% of Democrats believe that was the case and 67% of Republicans believe oh. that was the case. And so it's it's not that they don't think that democracy is on the ballot, it's that their perception and their view of democracy is on the ballot and, and is threatened. Uh, one of my dearest friends is a Republican in that district, in your same district. We were having this debate down, down in Mike Garcia's district. Um, and, and he said, I, I think that there's a threat to democracy, too. It's just not coming from the Republicans. It's coming from the Democrats. And, and Democrats need to really understand that. And the reason why I say that is because you're not going to persuade anybody. We, we, are not in a, we are not a country where there are undecideds. And Democrats have got to wake up and stop this idea of what they always do, this navel-gazing notion of like, let's try and figure out what the opposition thinks and and maybe we can use better arguments and convince them on policy or convince them that the American experiment is in threat jeopardy. No, stop it, stop it. Best thing you can do is go register and turn out 18-year-olds who agree with you, who have a lower likelihood of showing up uh, to turn out and vote. Play into the demographics. Quit trying to persuade people. You're not persuading anybody. There's nobody who's like, 
who's better on democracy, <laughs> Republicans or Democrats? Like, yeah. I just don't know. Right. And, and that that's what, what bothers me about the talking heads out there who are like, oh, democracy's on the ballot. It's like everyone thinks democracy's on the ballot. Republicans and Democrats both think it's on the ballot. It's just a different version of what they believe democracy to be. So, so quit trying to convince your buddies. You're like, you're never going to convince them. Don't try to. Be smart. Go where the math is. Go where, go fishing where the fish are, like I said last time, and that's how you win campaigns. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You talked about the nature of uh, Democratic voters, Democratic activists. And I'm just thinking about when your piece about Latino voters came out in the New York Times and the initial reaction you got. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it was your piece that was like that, that ignited uh, a new conversation, but it's remarkable how many columns are coming out, how many conversations are being had about, you know, uh, where Latino voters uh, mm -hmm. are, are trending. So um, you did get a really good conversation started, despite what the initial reaction was. Yeah, that the, uh, look, I started my career in 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 Ventura County. Uh, my first congressional races were in Simi Valley to Ventura, the old, you know, 23rd congressional district. You're yeah. 22 now, so I've I've been involved politically in your part of the state. My 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 sister, my mother, live in Steamy Valley, right? Like the right adjacent to where you're at. I've ran millions of campaigns in that part of the state, and uh, I was watching Latino voters in the early 1990s. I've been I've been watching this for some time, and I've been saying like, if you think the Democrats have a hold on this community, you're just absolutely out of your mind. It's just not what's. And now now that it's happening nationally. I think there's this new awareness. Maybe we'll listen to that Mike Madrid guy. He's been saying this for a little bit of time, and maybe he's got something to say. And that's one of the challenges of being 20 years ahead of your time, I guess, is no one listens to you for 20 years. By the time they do, you're too old and it doesn't really matter anymore. But that's, yeah. it is what it is. I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to be braggadocio. I'm just trying to say to remind voters for the first time who may be listening on the Latino vote, Democrats have really serious problems. That doesn't mean that the Republicans are going to win the Latino vote. They will not win in my lifetime. But if they're picking up one or two or three percent more every election cycle, that is going to have profound, profound impacts on our democracy. So we've been talking a lot about California 27, where I am. You mentioned California 22. I think that's another one of those key mm -hmm. uh, uh, bench benchmark races, if yeah. you will. What maybe three to five house races will you be watching most closely that'll give you an indication as to which way this thing's going? Well, I don't watch West Coast races because we'll already know basically yeah. what's going to happen, right? So uh, you got to watch New York 19 again early on in election night. If you're looking for indications to get a sense of what's going to be happening in the country, you really need to look at I, you know, Spamberger's like district in Virginia, the yeah. New York 19 is the one that with the special election. Yeah. The North Carolina uh, statewide race is very, very close, by the way. North Carolina is always a little bit leans a little bit more Democrat on on in polling than it actually manifests on the ground. But if North Carolina is, you know, if if, if the Democrat wins North Carolina and that's that's very possible in the Senate. Yeah. OK. That means there's probably a very good night for Democrats. Mm. That's that's the real indicator you should be looking at. Uh, th these House seats, I mean, they're, they're going to be interesting, but the way they count, the way they come in are a little bit challenging. Again, look at New York 19. Yeah, I, I think that's probably North Carolina to me is is always kind of a canary in the coal mine. How that breaks, the size of the break is going to tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, interesting. This is such interesting stuff. I'm a longtime fantasy league geek. So now, now yeah. I'm a fantasy league geek with politics. So yeah. I love this stuff. So last question. Do you have any questions for me? 
Yeah, I want to know a little bit about your journey. I mean, when you started the podcast, we talked about this a little bit, uh, I think a couple of times. I would, I'd just like to keep checking in because you're very passionate and I think you're a very good um, ambassador for religion and faith in the public space at a time where where we are polarized, not just by race and party, but increasingly by religion. And, and you've seen me critical of some groups on social media because of that, that partisanship that has seeped into the faith community, which I think is destructive for, for communities of faith, first and foremost, but for the country secondarily. How would you would you launch this public discussion that you have started successfully uh, again, knowing what you know now by leaning into the religion angle, argument, discussion? I think there is, it, in some ways, the temperature of the water is even hotter than when I started. Because remember, I started this conversation, albeit on a, you know very low profile, pre-2020 election. Mm -hmm. um, just about a month before the 2020 election. So things, the, the heat has only been turned up a little bit, but when the heat is turned up, the conversation itself becomes more imperative. You know, mm -hmm. I'm one generation removed from uh, Jews who lived in Ukraine when, uh, I think we've just discussed this before, when the only thing that the Bolsheviks and the Cossacks and the Tsarists could agree on is they all hated the Jews, Right. you know? Right. So- you know, if I think that I'm living in a time where where it's um, it's fraught with with really tense conversations, I just have to think about the the stories that my grandmother told me about when she was a little girl in Ukraine. I have to remember the stories um, that I heard secondhand from the other part of our family that didn't leave Eastern Europe and was eviscerated in World War II and the Holocaust. Mm. So I just have to keep that in mind, not you know, and not to compare myself to that because again, like as fraught as these conversations are, when I go into just a one-on-one -on -one coffee with a buddy from that Bible study I described a little bit earlier, we can still have a coffee. We can still have a beer. There's still some, some folks, it takes a little bit of work to, for me to chip through and, and get them to come out uh, to, to get together with me because they, you know, they've kind of hardened in their positions and, and made assumptions about the fact that I'm, I'm not a Fox News Trumpist, MAGA hat wearing kind of a guy, then I must be a socialist loving, you know, tree hugging, critical race theory, what they all the labels that they want to put on me. And then, but once we get together, once we once we're seeing each other, our human faces in front of each other, then that humanity is allowed to 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 come through, you know, and and I can't reach everybody, but but when we when we allow for that space and create that space for each other to be to, to make a human connection, I think that that cuts through mm -hmm. as much as they listen to Hannity or Will Cow or or Ben Shapiro, or whoever it is that they're listening to 20 hours a week. When I'm sitting in front of them and they're sitting in front of me, they're not that um, MAGA hat wearing guy. They're just my buddy who I'm having a beer with. Mm -hmm. And I think if there's any cure for what ails us currently or what the many symptoms that we're experiencing right now it's that it's it's emphasizing the relational over the transactional emphasizing the humanity of a person who has vast differences from me who i walk into and he has the the big old bumper sticker on his gun locker that says come and take them you know and i'm thinking man nobody's coming to take your tinker toys buddy <laughs> right you know but right. he takes it like a you know like hey now let's sit down and play some cards right. you know I think that's going to cut through and that's going to save us. So 
if you're asking whether I'd start it again, whether whether the the stakes are higher or too high to to have, I think the the higher the stakes go, the more important it is to have these conversations and to pursue those human one on one um, relationships because that's what's gonna that's that that's the salve that we need. You know, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question directly. No, but- I mean I love your passion and for 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 this project. It's it's important. It's needed. And and I just I guess what I was asking was are you are you seeing anything hopeful and what i'm hearing in your answer is yes it's in the one on ones I, yeah. I so a lot of us get frustrated when we think about the big picture and why do these people think these people you know when we think in terms of those people them you know and and the the bigger problems and wanting it to be solved overnight even on a big night like when biden won the election that night oh we thought it's all over you know it's not it's not but if we're looking for one one degree for the temperatures to come down a little bit with one person. I think that's doable. That's when I'm more hopeful is when I think about my buddy, Darren, who we just got together for drinks a week ago. And we're so far apart in terms of who he thinks is is the cause of a lot of the problems that ail our country versus what I think. So many, so many differences. He's the guy with the big gun rack and, you know, um, and uh, listening to Ben Shapiro all day, every day. You know, but we get together and we're still just buds. You know, we're pals. I'm not going to convince him to become, uh, you know, to vote for Christie. To your point, right? He, he ain't. He just ain't doing it. At best, maybe he just won't go out to vote this time around. You know, but there's one degree of persuasion there. There's one degree of persuasion that you know what? They're not all crazy. They, the they, the you know, the people who aren't in his little circle. Um, there's one degree of persuasion with one guy. And when that's my expectation and that's my goal, it's more realistic. I have control over the here and now with the person that's right in front of me. And the relationship pervades, the relationship um, trumps, if you will, uh, everything else, all of the other noise. Uh, there's substance to that. There's nuance to that. There's humanity to that. And that's what I. That's what keeps me going. That's get, what gives me some hope. I mean, I appreciate, like I said, the passion for the project. It's great to talk to you. I'm glad we've developed the friendship too, because, um, because you're trying to do good in the world, man. And I want to see you succeed, brother. I appreciate it. We got to do another dinner, maybe get Ron back. Ron was like, every time I talk to him, he's in, you know, Paris, you guys went to Ukraine, he's in Australia, you know, get him back to SoCal. Let's grab some dinner again, man. He's all over the world. That guy. I love Love him dearly, but yeah, he's, he's hard to track down. (laughs) Well, if we, if, uh, for, for other folks, you know, I mentioned mic drop and, and, uh, Latino vote and, you know, just all the great work that you're doing. How can folks find you online and, and, um, and your shows and stuff like that? Yeah. If you're interested in following me on Twitter and, uh, these are, I think you got a good sample of the things I think about and talk about pretty regularly. You can, uh, follow me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And then I do this on the Colin app, C-A-L-L-I-N. It's called Colin because you can call in and ask questions. Uh, it's called Mic Drop. Um, download the Colin um, app, or you can find it on anywhere else you get your podcast, Mic Drop. And then finally, if you're a real geek about the Latino vote, Chuck Rocha and I, who was a senior advisor to the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, obviously a progressive Democrat, myself a Republican, talk about the fight for the Latino vote. You can find that at the Latino vote anywhere you get your podcasts. Yeah. And just to, again, I, the folks already know about um, about. Uh, the Latino vote. We talked about it last time and Chuck was on last time. Uh, but just to give a, another shout out to the new program, Mike Drop, man, it's super in depth. And unlike a lot of other call-in shows, 
your callers are really informed. You, you have some folks on there that that have such intelligent questions and you guys really do. It's a the the several episodes I've listened to you all yeah. go over, you know, a couple hours. So if you really want to get some insightful questions and and informed, experienced people answering those questions, Mike Mike is certainly the best of the best. So I can't I can't uh, vouch for it enough. So Thank Thanks you. For the- Mike Drop is definitely not for beginners. It's for it's for the kids who sit in the front row of class of politics to want to know deep, deep down what's going on in a campaign. And we, we drill deep. So it's a fun conversation. It's great. It's great. Well, thanks for coming in, Mike. And I can't wait to uh, hang out with you again. And for listeners, as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit the subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. And like I said earlier, tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. Ever. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. And again, remember the dub, dub, dub. For whatever reason, uh, I haven't figured out the digital side of it enough so that uh, I'm cool enough to just get the politics and religion. But it's www.politicsandreligion.us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.